This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, my name's John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on timely international issues. Today's topic is Russian disinformation campaigns through social media and their interference in U.S. elections. Uh, We're fortunate to have with us today John W. Kelly, Ph.D., who is the founder and CEO of Graphica, which is a data analysis firm. The firm was founded on technology that he invented, blending social network analysis, content analysis, and statistics to make complex online networks understandable. John has provided expert testimony on foreign interference in the U.S. presidential election before the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in the news today. He is also an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard, where he works with leading academics to design and implement empirical studies of the Internet's role in business, culture, and politics around the world. A quantitative social scientist by training, uh, John Kelly earned his PhD in communications from Columbia and has also studied at Stanford and at Oxford's Internet Institute. Thanks so much for joining us today, John Kelly. Uh, My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So I understand you were part of the team that first detected Russian disinformation campaigns on social media and its interference in the 2016 election. Can you tell us about that and explain how it came about? Sure. Well, I guess there are a lot of ways to tell this story and a lot of kind of points in the timeline we could drop in. Uh, But... Let me start with the period around the election itself, kind of um, leading up to it and through it, and then what happened after. So back in uh, 2015, we started working with a research unit at uh, Google called Jigsaw on um, algorithms that could detect basically what was real versus fake online. So when you have some cascade of information or adoption of a hashtag or some kind of uh, you know mass behavior online, could you detect whether it was happening organically uh, or could you detect if it was uh, being manipulated or sort of boosted in some way by coordinated activity? And so this was a kind of scientific research project. And in executing this, we had to train the algorithm. So we had a number of uh, examples of known disinformation operations or information operations, um, kind of manipulation of um of uh, social media, things that were kind of to train uh, for the positive case. And then we had a number of sort of known organic um, things going viral, you know, kind of just spontaneous cultural activities on the other hand. And then we were basically working to construct an algorithm to tell the difference between these two things. And that was a really just amazing kind of science research project that we were working on. And some of those 
cases of uh, manipulation were Russian information operations and were, were known to be such, um, although it wasn't necessarily clear uh, which Russian actor, threat actor was responsible because there's several different entities uh, in Russia that do this kind of stuff. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, we knew that some of them were Russian and um, this was just sort of data we had been working with. And we are, so we're well aware that this kind of manipulation was in their toolkit and that some of it was... Um, being done around the election. And this is kind of in the lead up to the election. And remember this time, you know, nobody understood that this sort of thing was happening. It was only a kind of small group of researchers and, um, you know, academics that kind of were tuned into this kind of activity. And then the election happened. And I, I still remember being invited about two or three weeks after the election to a think tank in DC to sit around a table and hear people kind of, you know, gnash their teeth over the outcome. And, and uh, I remember piping into the conversation at one moment and saying, well, you guys realize there was a massive Russian disinformation or propaganda campaign kind of throughout that election. And people looked at me like I had three heads. I mean, these were, you know, professional journalists and kind of folks in the, uh, you know, DC communication space. And then, you know, fast forward a little bit and uh, everyone understood that that had been happening. And so, that shift is sort of interesting. And um, so I wouldn't say it's that so much we were the first ones detecting it. I'd say we were among a small community of researchers that were clued into this and looking for and studying this kind of activity before the election. And then uh, in the ramp up to kind of the publicizing of it, uh, we wound up with a, a interesting role. And maybe I could tell the story of how that evolved. So um, sure, please do. Yep. So I think we, we first wound up in the public eye for this around the work with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, or what I'll just call SISI. And uh, so in the aftermath of the election, SISI was interviewing American experts uh, and some foreign experts, you know, folks like Phil Howard at Oxford, uh, on foreign influence uh, and information operations. And so they kind of had a just a lot of folks coming through that they were interviewing and kind of asking questions and trying to build their own. This is the staffers, the SISI staffers, kind of understanding how it worked. And um, I, so I was just on their list and started talking to them. And then with because I had this experience that from our, our work training these algorithms, you know, I had some hard experience with uh, and some actual data. They they started inviting me back. <laughs> and uh, that began a conversation uh, with Sissy that ultimately led to the research projects that wound up being uh, made public as a, a, as a report. And so, um, you know, they had been given all the data on uh, the Internet Research Agency's activity, you know, the Russian Troll Farm uh, in St. Petersburg Internet Research Agency, part of the Prigozhin network. He's also known as Putin's chef. Uh, Prigozhin is a Russian oligarch who is uh, kind of sits on top of all these sort of dark arts, uh, you know, uh, online manipulation capabilities. And um, so they had all the, the Sissy had all the data that uh, Google, Facebook, and Twitter had, you know, attributed to the Russians and who had turned over to them. Uh, and they wanted to do something with it, but, you know, they don't have, you know, open source analysts on staff there. And it turned out that they were interested to put together a kind of research project. And um, they, you know, allowed me to be involved in that. And we helped design a project to 
uh, turn over all that data to uh, two different teams. So the, and the teams weren't supposed to know who each other were or have any contact with each other so that the reports and the findings that came out would be uh, kind of, you know, verifiable against one another. Um, and so we wound up uh, on one team with Oxford Internet Institute, uh, Phil Howard's shop, their computational propaganda program there, uh, plus Graphica was one of the teams. And then the other team was a company called New Knowledge, along with a scholar from Columbia's Tau Center and uh, a couple other folks. And so they messengered a hard, encrypted hard drive up to New York uh, with all that data from the platforms on it. And we spent about seven months looking at that and uh, just fantastically, you know, uh, interesting and rewarding experience to dive through all that stuff and reconstruct uh, what the Russians had been up to during that time, or at least what the Internet Research Agency had been up to at that time. Uh, because one of the really key findings for us at the end of that project was that of the known Russia, of the Russian information operations we knew about and had studied in our uh, research work, uh, the IRA was only responsible for a few of them, which meant there was another Russian actor out there, another organization that had done the other ones. Fascinating story. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, how your software works and, you know, how you track down bots and that sort of thing and what more broadly has been done, you know, since 2016 to try to, you know, mitigate the consequences of Russian and perhaps other dis disinformation. We'll get into that next. Mm -hmm. So our software, which is it's essentially my dissertation kind of turned into a software stack. Um, I, I did a lot of work in network sociology at Columbia and was fascinated you know, my PhD program. I was fascinated by uh, kind of network analytic techniques and um, uh, their overlap with communications, particularly political communications. And that led to creating a machine learning based network analytics stack that would understand online conversations, not as a kind of river of content, which is the way that most systems understand it. You know, so take the Twitter fire hose and put a listening platform on top um, to understand how things are trending in that fire hose of content. Uh, but rather, I was interested in understanding online communications as a network, uh, you know, with relationships between authors and um, kind of understanding the pattern of information flow in that complex network. So I invented a technique for mapping out and then using machine learning to cluster, segment uh, very complex online discussion networks into different communities and then understand, you know, things about each of those communities, kind of who and what made them tick, what kinds of information resonated where. And that was what my dissertation was on, on weblogs. And then mm -hmm. over the years, started developing that technology, which eventually became the basis of Graphica's uh, software platform. Now, uh, what we're then doing is, uh, you know, allow me a digression, to, if you will, to discuss kind of the way we look at the world, because it's, it's I think, critical to understanding how the technology, what it means, hmm. um, which is that, you know, humanity evolved in a, a geo-terrain, you know, the planet Earth, the 2D planes wrapped around a sphere, and all human collective activity happens in that space. You know, and for thousands of years, uh, as we developed as a species and then as a civilization, set of civilizations, uh, all human collective activity requiring communications happened in that space. And the speed of those human 
communications was the speed of a horse or someone running down, down, you know, across the ground or the speed of a boat. You know, it's limited by uh, distance and mode of transport. And then you get to this magical moment with the invention of the telegraph where you kind of punch a wormhole through geoterrain and communicate at planetary scale in real time. And that radically rewired all the world's major organizations, you know, how empires were run, how armies fought, how markets worked, all that stuff uh, was radically transformed by the telegraph, even though nobody but Abraham Lincoln would have had one of these things in their house. Uh, and then fast forward to today where we're all connected at planetary scale in real time via devices that we carry around in our pockets and, you know, social networks and email and all these different things. And so now human communication, which is what forms the, you know, the, the, the lifeblood of uh, human collective action and civilization and nation states and everything we do uh, is primarily not mediated in geotrain anymore. It's mediated in what we call cyber social train. And that is constituted by the fabric of connections that arise from all the little choices people make about who to follow and what to like. And all these things create relationships and condition algorithms that determine, you know, how communities form and what and who is visible to who and how that information travels around. So we think of that as cyber social terrain. And we think of ourselves as cartographers of cyber social trends. We're using large scale uh, graph analysis, network analytics, machine learning to uh, map out these complex uh, online topologies and you know understand what flows with them. So that's what the technology does. And then how it becomes useful in understanding uh, information operations online is that because we've been mapping out organic, real communities and how they form, we've got a great deal of understanding about that. And we know what the patterns look like. And likewise, we know what the patterns of things that are fake look like. So um, you know, if there's a community that is, uh, you know, 10,000 accounts being run by some small number of entities, you know, uh, that has certain telltale uh, markers in terms of how it's constructed as a network, in terms of how it behaves semantically, uh, all that sort of stuff. So that's the work we were doing in our research project back when the Senate found us, uh, was trying to understand um, how we could uh, in algorithmically instrument uh, the measurement of that. Got it. Um, so do you think that the defenses that, you know, you're involved in creating uh, and, and sort of monitoring, I mean, are those doing what we need them to do? Or is this a never-ending battle that, you know, we can, we'll, that we'll always be playing cat and mouse? Yeah, well, I've got a lot of thoughts on that. I think um, on the one hand, it is a... Uh, it's a constant game of whack-a-mole. You know, you're, you're discovering uh, assets that uh, are controlled by some threat actor that are doing some kind of information operation or another, and you want to discover those as soon as you can, uh, as, you know, before they've been able to build up an audience and have whatever impact they're there to have and, uh, you know, take them down. So we, we work very closely with the social media platforms um, and, you know, so... Let me back up. What our, if you think of what our technology does, it's sort of like radar, right? But ra radar is only part of the defense. <laughs> you, need, you need a lot of other components to it. And um, what we specialize in is, is uh, discovery and um, uh, profiling of online manipulation networks across platform. 
So if you're if you're a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter uh, or a Pinterest or a Reddit, you know you've got responsibility to uh, look at your own platform and try and discover and mitigate any um, you know coordinated activity, uh, inappropriate coordinated activity happening on your own platform. Uh, but but your responsibility kind of stops at your own borders and. Any uh, sophisticated uh, contemporary information operation is, is cross-platform or multi-platform. I mean, one, uh, there's a Russian operation called Secondary Infection that we discovered where we uh, detailed um, uh, this past year, which, you know, manipulated hundreds of websites and platforms. Um, and most of them will manipulate at least three or four or five. Uh, so you need someone who's taking a look at what's uh, transiting, not just you know within a platform, but across them. Uh, that's what we specialize in. Uh, but you have to have the cooperation of all those entities. And I think that the the good news since 2016, uh, there's an, there are a number of bullet points under good news. I mean, one is people know what's happening now, and you know they're not naive about it anymore. Uh, the second is that the platforms, those that can afford it, have invested a great deal in uh, discovery and mitigation, you know, kind of threat intelligence capabilities. Um, and so they've got really talented teams that this is their job, you know, uh, 24-7. And then you've got a uh, kind of research community that's growing and becoming more sophisticated, including uh, academics, you know, folks like uh, the uh, Alex Stamos's research center at Stanford, uh, as well as companies, you know, folks like us. And we all communicate with each other and work in a kind of coalition manner uh, so that, you know, you've got a lot of these different pieces which are operating together to try and tease these things out, you know, and whack the moles faster than they were whacked before. Right, but there do seem to be more moles in the field now. I mean, we've just learned, it seems, that uh, Iran is a major player in this kind of activity. Maybe you could speak to that. Is that really news to you? Um, are there other players? And uh, definitely want to ask you about China's involvement in these kinds of activities, since that seems never really to come up for discussion. Yeah, so I think... Um the good news I just listed is uh, somewhat offset by the bad news. And the bad news is that um, even though Russia gets all the press, um, Iran has been active in, uh, you know, online, online manipulation on American platforms for uh, about as long as Russia has. Um, and has been far more active than most people realize. And the news, just the news today uh, isn't really news to us. I mean, it, I mean, the specifics of it are that, you know, they're responsible for that particular operation. Uh, but the Iranian capability is uh, significant and it's been uh, in operation for, you know, for, for a decade. Um, the uh, Chinese are more, you know, recent to the game of international Western platform-based information operations and their techniques are somewhat different uh, and their approaches and their objectives are somewhat different, but they're evolving quite rapidly. Um, but beyond just the kind of the, the headline nation states, there's a vast uh, increase in other types of malicious actors out there manipulating the Internet. Uh, and that's smaller nation states. You know, the, the, the Saudis are doing this. And, uh, you know, the, um, uh, there's a great report out from Oxford Internet Institute on what they call cyber troops. You know, this is something that dozens and dozens of countries invest in. 
you know, people that are members of their military or intelligence services or proxies, that their job is to manipulate online conversations. This is a, um, and to hack stuff and do other kinds of operations. But this is becoming a, um, a facility that a lot of states have, but also a lot of non-state actors. So uh, you have anything from kind of PR firms for hire, kind of dark arts PR firms for hire to, uh, you know, individuals that do this manipulation. So the, the manipulation of online conversations and platforms is uh, proliferated and the techniques for doing that have gotten somewhat more sophisticated, even as the techniques for discovery have gotten more sophisticated. And this is, you know, rippled out into a number of kind of interesting changes in the landscape. Interesting. Um, I, I guess I wonder to some extent, you know, what exactly are these other countries insofar as we're talking about countries? Uh, what exactly are they trying to achieve? I mean, it seemed clear in 2016 that Russia was intervening on behalf of, uh, you know, the election of Donald Trump. It was basically trying to support Trump's effort to get elected. Um, but, you know, it also seems that a certain amount of the activity really is oriented simply to, uh, you know, reducing people's trust in the legitimacy of the system. And, you know, one might argue that <clears throat> that's the main problem that exists in political life in the United States, at least, uh, that trust in government has been in decline at, you know, at the very least since Watergate and, uh, to some degree, since Reagan declared um, government to be part of the problem, not the solution. So I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about the aims and objectives of these countries when they are engaged in this activity. Yeah, that's a great question because they're not they're not really the same. I think um, the Russians, in, in my view, are the most dangerous to us uh, because their objective is to you know, take our society apart at it, at it seems, uh, to sort of drive wedges uh, into all the crevices that already exist and try and make those crevices unbridgeable. Um, you know, their objective is really to, um, you know, pull our, pull our society apart or kind of, you know, snip all its sinews so it just falls apart. Um, that's really different than the Iranians who, even though they do a little bit of, you know, called electoral manipulation, as we've just seen, uh, it's primarily aimed at, you know, swaying an electoral outcome or kind of influencing a, you know, a, a particular election cycle when it is targeted at us. The vast majority of their activity is, is targeted in their own uh, sphere of influence in the Middle East, you know, so uh, most of the Iranian kind of uh, online propaganda, uh, 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 covert and overt apparatus is, a is aimed at their part of the world. You know, um, and, uh, you know, they're kind of squaring up against the Saudis who also have a capability. And it's, you know, they're, re they're really focused more on uh, their own sort of, um, you know, their own neighborhood. Um, the Chinese are focused on uh, promoting narratives that make them look good and uh, support critical foreign policy objectives like their, you know, claims to sovereignty in the South China Sea, uh, their claims uh, around Taiwan. Um, you know, so they're more have kind of a punch list of uh, specific foreign policy objectives and trying to support, 
narrative, uh, you know, kind of the acceptance narratives that lead to acceptance of those. Um, and then it's just a matter of, you know, kind of how far abroad are they pushing that, that information? And lately they've been kind of pushing that narrative, uh, uh, much more broadly, including into the American space, you know, things like, uh, their, their stories around the, you know, their interpretation of the events in Hong Kong. Uh, but they're really focused on things that are of you know direct interest to the Chinese state. You know, they're not trying to do things that make America one category of Americans hate another category of Americans more, uh, which is what the Russians are really doing. And then I think as you cascade into other state-based actors, they're really focused on they're kind of training those capabilities on um, uh, kind of whatever the the you know their own uh, foreign policy objectives are. Uh, usually very close to their own countries, or they're training them on internal uh, targets. So uh, there's a, a report we just put out um, uh, just in the last couple of days on uh, the military in Myanmar, uh, and we've reported on that uh, before. Um, also, you know, what the Filipino government does in the Philippines. A lot of these uh, other countries, that capability is mainly focused on uh, solidifying the government's internal power and, um, you know, sort of attacking their internal enemies. So, uh, I mean, at some level, I'm inclined to say that um, this is just a kind of extension of warfare. And, you know, it's uh, thinking of Clausewitz's argument that uh, war war is just an an extension of politics by other means. Um, And it sounds like this sort of activity, even if we don't want to call it cyber warfare, and it's sometimes directed at internal populations rather than other countries, it does seem to have a lot of that kind of uh, aspect to it, that it's really about gaining advantage over these other uh, actors uh, with which one might have engaged, let's say, diplomatically in the past, but now, you know, one can do it through these other means. Is that a reasonable way to think about this? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, I think people don't think broadly enough about you know, how they conceive of the problem. And, um, you know, the frame often ends up being stuck on, oh, the Russians or insert, you know, or the Iranians are trying to affect the 2020 election. And it's really a much, much bigger problem than that. Um, you know, so first off, one of the things we discovered in our work for the Senate um, around the 2016 election is that across every platform that the Russians were manipulating that we had the data on, you know, Instagram, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, um, Facebook, the, the level of Russian activity went up after uh, the election in 2016, you know, by typically 50 to 60% per platform, uh, but up by almost 240% on Instagram. Um, so the Russians stepped on the gas after the election. It wasn't just about the election. Uh, but if you step back and think about it in an even bigger frame, we have to ask ourselves what's at stake for, you know, political bodies for, let's just say, nation states. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, humanity doesn't just live in geo terrain anymore. We live in a cyber social terrain. Um, you know, nations are to, you know, uh, uh, adopt Benedict Anderson's view, you know, imagined communities. Uh, and in the old uh, geo-terrain, they've got physical borders, and so it's easy to kind of know where they begin and end because uh, you've got a border and usually an army or some defensive capability around it. But in cyber-social terrain, you don't have that. And yet, 
uh, all the narrative underpinning, the what are the stories about who we are and what we stand for and how we got here and where we're trying to go and who's the they and how do we relate to them? All these things that are the, uh, the lifeblood of a, you know, body politic uh, now have open borders <laughs> you know, that we don't know how to defend uh, and we don't even know how to think about. And, um, you know, so uh, I think we have to understand that, um, you know, to the extent that humanity is woven together in the 21st century in a cyber social uh, terrain that is primary over geo terrain in terms of human collective activity. And that is thus far, we haven't figured out how to defend that against manipulators who are injecting narratives that uh, make it much harder for us to sort of feel that we're of common cause and purpose and common identity with uh, one another uh, in the future. It's, it's a very hard problem. Interesting. I mean, it reminds me a little bit about of Michael Mann's claims that Michael Mann, the sociologist, not the filmmaker, um, who has argued against the whole term society because he thinks basically the world consists of networks of power of different kinds. And that despite being a sociologist, he'd like to get rid of the term societies. Uh, but, but I mean, the point you're making is that we really are, as you said earlier in the discussion, uh, we very much are connected to each other in real time globally. I had a Zoom conversation this morning with colleagues in Germany and Italy. No problem. Uh, I mean, I didn't do it from my phone, but I could have. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of remarkable transformation in that sense. Yeah. But it, it, the sort of phenomenon of things jumping from, you know, your locality um, up to global level and how that gets uh, mediated and formed online. I mean, a good example of this is, uh, you know, kind of in the height of the George Floyd protests, there was this D.C. blackout uh hashtag and sort of hoax that spread like wildfire, this idea that, uh, you know, the, the government or somebody had cut the power in Washington um, uh, in the middle of these protests. And it didn't happen, uh, but it, it was trending for hours um, and really made all the different sensors and needles that monitor online conversations tilt over into the red and cause kind of mass panic. Uh, and this was something that you know, it wound up trending globally, not because it was true or because people in Washington were camping onto it and saying it. Uh, it got uh, boosted by a network of anonymous accounts, you know, literally the organization anonymous, <laughs> uh, followed by a kind of big boost from uh, K-pop fans in Asia that are extremely powerful online, uh, picked this thing up. And you wound up with a, you know, something driving the news cycle. Uh, a, you know, sort of hoax or mistake about a blackout in Washington, D.C., which happened because of, you know, international actors in the cybersocial uh, sphere. You know, it's just an example. Just a reminder that it's not all good. <laughs> um, so uh, we're coming up now to, uh, you know, an election. I mean, we're practically there. It's only... Uh, a few days away, really, at this point. I mean, how would you say this uh, kind of interference has affected the election process? And, you know, have we been able to kind of keep it, relatively speaking, under control? You listed some positives, but you've also listed some negatives. But could you speak specifically to the election? 
Sure. So it's not over yet, and uh, we're being vigilant, and interesting things are happening. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of differences between the, uh, uh, you know, the tactics and um, approaches of different threat actors. Um, and so the IRA really is the most well-known of the Russian state actors, and that model where you're trying to cultivate um, online assets that we've seamlessly into political communities, uh, organic, real political communities, and then affect their behavior in order to, um, you know, say, diminish support for a more mainstream candidate, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, attacking Hillary from the left, you know, you see the same kind of thing, attacking Biden from the left. Um, these kinds of techniques that involve IRA-like uh, sets of assets have been less effective this time. Uh, both the things that they've been trying to do to hide uh, now that the platforms and us and others are out looking for them uh, have made them less effective. But uh, generally, people are more clued into the possibility of that kind of activity and a little more wary of it. The thing that remains dangerous, though, was more the, the approach of the uh, GRU, which was responsible in the 2016 cycle for hacking, uh, you know, or, you know, acquiring the DNC, uh, DNC's internal data and for releasing it uh, uh, via WikiLeaks and, uh, and other methods as well around like the Podesta emails and the DNC leaks cases and things like that. So that hack and release uh, method is very, very dangerous. Um, and that's more what uh, Russian military intelligence does. We haven't seen that yet. I mean, the sort of, you know, Hunter Biden laptop story is a little bit similar to it, but um we're kind of, I think, still unpacking uh, what's really going on with that. Um, so I think that, you know, with respect to the election itself, so far I'm encouraged and feel like we've done a good job uh, and the platforms have done a good job of kind of stepping up here. But it's a sophisticated problem and a lot of the manipulation now is domestic. I mean, it always has been, but I'd say the biggest problem we face with trying to mitigate uh, foreign influence campaigns online is that we tolerate them coming from Americans, you know, and the, uh, uh, the range of domestic disinformation and call it, you know, um, uh, covert online uh, uh, influence uh, campaigns, that sort of stuff is really, um, the fact that we tolerate it domestically makes it much, much harder to find out when, uh, you know, other, other states are doing it. Um, so the jury's still out. Uh, I'm encouraged, um, but it's not over yet. I see. Well, that's an encouraging note, perhaps, on which to end, um, you know, since one of the big problems with our election seems to be precisely that people are concerned that it's, you know, it's being uh, manipulated by various actors and is, uh, you know, perhaps not as legitimate as we would like to think it is. Yeah. But thank you, John Kelly. Sorry, did you want to say I something? One parting thought on that. Uh, yeah. I think what you said is just is, is really important that one of the greatest dangers to um, this kind of activity is to delegitimize uh, the communities, particularly vulnerable communities that have been targeted by it. So, you know, if you have the, the Russians Internet Research Agency have, for instance, heavily targeted uh, black Americans and black political activists. Um, but they've also targeted, um, you know, the far left and they've targeted other groups as well. If you know, 
it is a danger that the fact that a community has been targeted by this stuff somehow supports a narrative that they are compromised or that their views are less legitimate. And I think that's really something to guard against is uh, not allowing this activity to delegitimize uh, those who are actually its victims. Great. Thanks for that concluding thought. Very helpful. Um, I want to just say uh, thanks for to, to John Kelly of Graphica for sharing his insights into the Russian and other disinformation uh, campaigns that are affecting us, have been affecting us at least since 2016. That's, today, that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I also want to thank Meryl Sovner of the EU Studies Center at the Ralph Bunch Institute for helping produce this episode and Christo Voinov for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying we look forward to having you with us next time on International Horizons.